It's another special edition of the Sunday Morning Grind podcast on a Saturday morning. I'm Greg Finley. He's Josh Taylor. We got a lot to get into today. Josh, I want to open up with the news of the week here in Pittsburgh. And most people probably know about what's going on with Pine Richland and the situation with their head coach and their entire coaching staff. The superintendent pretty much made the decision that they were not bringing back any of the coaching staff for this upcoming season. And the original report was because of hazing and bullying. And once people actually investigated this situation, because this is a big deal. High school football in Pennsylvania is a huge deal, and Pine Richland's one of the most successful programs in my lifetime. So a lot of people are going to care about this. And so... You know, investigations went on, the news has covered it, and it's turned out to be there is no hazing, there is no bullying. The superintendent is legitimately jealous that the football program is getting all the attention instead of academics. And I just have to I just have to get something off my chest real quick about this. You look at some of these other schools, Thomas Jefferson comes to mind. And how successful that program has been from the very beginning. What Chirpak has done for that program. And the fact that you haven't heard a single thing about this. Not one at Thomas Jefferson. I think about uh, Pittsburgh Central Catholic and Terry Totten. And how, how successful that program has been. And you don't hear anything about this. But Pine Richland, 85-18 and 18 under Eric Kasparovich. This team goes to the state playoffs what, two, the last two years and one? And now, all of a sudden, this is the year that we're not going to bring him back if you're the superintendent, and it's because of jealousy of how successful this team is compared to the academics. When you think Pine Richland, you think the football team instead of the academics. Isn't that how this works in a lot of things, Josh? If I bring up Alabama, do you think about academics or do you think about Nick Saban? I am going to immediately going to go to Nick Saban. I don't remember ever knowing the president of many universities. I don't, I don't know many of them. You give me a university name, I'm not going to know who their president is. But I'll probably know who their football coach is, and depending on how big the school is, I might know their athletic director's name. That's what we're talking about. When we're talking about the impact of successful football programs, or successful programs for any sport, whether it's football or basketball or anything else, if you have a team that has done the type of things that Pine Richland's football team has done in recent years, or like a Pittsburgh Central Catholic, like you mentioned, or, or one of the schools that's more popular for, say, basketball, for instance, if you have a program that has been that successful, hyper-successful, if you will, and let's, let's use Our Lady of the Sacred Heart for an example. They've won a couple of WPL championships in recent years, and they just won their first state championship. I can't imagine somebody giving head coach Mike Rodriguez a hard time after winning a WPIL championship again and then winning this team's first state championship. I, I can't see that happening. But here's the truth of the matter. And there's, there's no getting around this. This really isn't new, Greg. This is not a new thing. And this, is, this is definitely a thing. But we'll play is this a thing later on. But this in and of itself has been a thing for quite some time. I'm, I'm reminded of one of my early, early stories as a reporter. I, I did some brief, brief print reporting work before I started working in TV as a reporter. 
and it was pretty much the first breaking news story I ever wrote. This was more than 10 years ago. I was writing for um, Upper St. Clair's Patch.com page. This is back when Patch.com really started to grow and become a thing. And I was working for Upper St. Clair Patch, uh, a co-worker of mine at uh, WTAE was starting to run this website. And I drew the beat of covering Upper St. Clair boys basketball and Upper St. Clair hockey. And I got to cover both of these teams throughout the course of their seasons, got to know the coaches really well, got to know a handful of the players really well, still talk to some of the players to this day. Actually, have become pretty good friends with them. Um, and it, it blows my mind to no end that those kids are entering their 30s, and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm so old. But anyway, um, during the course of the season, you get to know coaches, you get to know players, you get to know parents, and they, you know, confide some things in you over, over time to the point where when that season was over, uh, the parents and the, you know, booster associations – for both teams, they invited me to their banquets to, you know, celebrate with their team at the end of the season. Now, the basketball team, um, I want to say they lost in the WPIL playoffs, but the hockey team actually won the Penguins Cup and then won the um, Pennsylvania Cup, state championship. So I got to actually, you know, be a part of that in that banquet when they celebrated all these things, and it was really cool. But maybe a month or so after the state championship hockey team, at their banquet and everything had kind of died down. It came time for the boosters and the, the you know hockey association to um, make a decision if they wanted to keep their coach that just won a state championship, and they decided not to. And I found this out. One of all things, social media, and I'm like, wait a minute. So I actually started contacting players. I reached out to players. I reached out to the parents I knew. I reached out to one or two coaches I knew. I said, hey, is this true? And they confirmed it. They said, yeah, this is true. They voted to not bring the coach back. So they, they pretty much, for all intents and purposes, decided that they were going to fire this guy. That just won, helped them win the state championship. And there were two sides to this. There was a group of people that wanted him to stay, most of them being the seniors that were departing. And there were a group of people that wanted him to go, mostly being underclassmen players and underclassmen players' parents. And that's pretty much what the two sides were. When you went about to, we were trying to figure out how people felt one way or another. But the deeper I dug into the story, the more I found out that there really was no concrete reason to get rid of a head coach that they were trying to get rid of, other than the fact they just wanted him out and they wanted their guy to replace him. That's pretty much it. They wanted the JV coach in and they wanted their guy. And it's like, okay. You know, when it's that simple, it's fine. But... On the surface, it looked ten times worse because the way it was done, and I think the way it was carried out, was the thing that kind of upset a lot of people, especially players that really loved this coach. And it turned into me writing this story. This is my first ever breaking news story that I broke. And it actually got a lot of attention, so much so that, bear in mind, I'm writing for this website, but I'm also working as a sports producer at WTAE. So this story that I wrote for this website catches the attention of my bosses at WTA. They said, hey, is this true? I said, yeah, I reported it. They said, you think the coach would want to talk to us? I said, I can find out. And then ended up turning into like the first ever news story that I actually produced for WTA's news department. And it ended up being a big deal. Like I went and did the interviews and everything, and we ended up putting this really big story together, so it became a big deal. But it kind of exposed me back then to the politics that are involved in situations like this. 
So it doesn't surprise me at all. And it, honestly, you can insert name of big school here, and I'd be surprised if their coach hasn't been attempted to be fired at least once. I remember there was a time when they tried to fire Jim Render at Upper St. Clair for the football team. Mm-hmm. And you can find reason after reason after reason because people are going to go looking for him. And if you go looking for reasons, eventually you're going to find one. And that's what that sounded like here. I mean, people just went looking for a reason to get rid of a guy, and sooner or later they found one. Does that make it justifiable? I don't know. Nine times out of ten, I'm going to say probably not. But I'm really not that shocked about it because it happens more often than people think. And there are times when, whether it's a high school or a college, where administrators will decide, you know what, you are just, you're just way too popular for this school and we've got to get rid of you. How many times have you heard me reference the name How Mummy when it comes to college football, right? Oh, a lot. The, the guy who pretty much, the guy who pretty much pioneered the air raid offense. Yeah, every time we talk the about first, it. <laughs> yeah, pretty much every time we talk college football. Now, the guy who pioneered this offense, the very first head coach job he ever got at the college ranks, was at a really small school. I want to say it was in Iowa. I want to say it was Iowa Wesleyan, if, if I remember correctly. If I'm getting my stuff right. I think it's Iowa Wesleyan. It was the first school that How Mummy ever coached at on the college ranks. It was a small little school. I think it was Division Three, But they developed this really good winning football program. Using this offense, that was kind of unconventional, and the way he ran his team was kind of different from the way everybody else did it. To the point where things got so popular, he was recruiting players, and they were actually winning football games. And the, the school president said, look, you're too popular here. The focus is on football and it's supposed to be on this, so we got to let you go. Just like that. Because he had a successful football program, and it brought attention to the football team, and it brought attention to the university, but it wasn't the attention that the university wanted. It, it really is a tale that is as old as interscholastic athletics itself. And it's happening now with Pine Richland. It's going to happen again somewhere else. Does it make it justifiable and right? No, it doesn't. But it just underscores a common point that sometimes when you take the emphasis off the important things, off of what, what is actually positive, it's, it's drawing positive attention to your school district, to your community, to your student athletes and to your students, why touch it? If it don't, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And that's something that really does, you know, it, it gets my good every time. And I, I literally had this discussion not too long ago. And I was talking to somebody, and they asked me, they said, "What's your favorite thing to cover?" I said, "I've covered just about everything. I've covered the NFL, I've covered MLB, I've covered minor league baseball, I've covered I've covered college basketball, I've covered pro hockey." I've even covered, covered college hockey. I've covered uh, college baseball, college football, college basketball. I've covered a lot of those things. I said, my favorite thing to cover to this day is high school football. Just, I just enjoy the atmosphere. I just enjoy how the communities get into it. I enjoy the fans. I enjoy the bands. I enjoy the cheerleaders. And, you know, every once in a while, I'll try to find out who's got the best stuff at the concession stand. It's just how, it's always just been how that atmosphere operates is why I enjoy it so much. But at the same time, a lot of the negative things that come associated with that landscape and with that environment, 99 times out of 100, it's the adults in charge, whether it's parents or the school boards or the boosters or whoever have you, or in this case, school superintendents. It is the adults that make it difficult to enjoy. So when I hear something like this, does it upset me? Yes. But does it surprise me? No, because more often than not, the majority of the time, 
when it comes to situations and environments like this, the adults screw it up for everybody. And it sounds like that's what happened here today. I have a huge problem with the fact that they are making stuff up to get him canned. If you want to say the football program is too successful and it's taking away from academics, at least you're being honest. But if you're going to blatantly lie and say hazing and bullying is why we're letting all the coaching staff go, and then the entire team literally talks to the news and says that's never happened. And now, think about it, Josh. If hazing and bullying was going on, wouldn't the police know about it? And they said this was going on for seven years now. Why haven't they done anything about it then if it's been happening? Because it probably didn't happen, right? And if it's been going on for seven years, that means it's literally being passed down from class to class. And it's done that like almost two cycles over. And we're I mean, only hearing two about classes it now. of freshmen have gone to seniors and seen this whole thing happen. Right. So I'm not buying that. I'm not buying that excuse whatsoever. And again, whenever I hear these students talk to the news and the coaches talk to the news and say, yeah, Eric Kasparovich isn't that kind of guy. And, you know, we know him. He was he was on 93.7 The Fans High School Football Show for two years. Mm-hmm. Great guy. I covered Pine Richland whenever I announced for the trip, and I've spoken to him about things. Mm-hmm. He's a great guy. As have I. Yes. As have I with TV coverage for the CW. Right. So he's been nothing but good to us. And so, and I think the entire community, and not just the community of Pine Richland, but I think Pittsburgh in general cares about this. I mean, they care about high school football. They care about, you know, Pine Richland being successful because it looks good in Pittsburgh. When you see Pine Richland on ESPN because they're mm-hmm. playing against a big school like in Florida for a, an opening week game, that gets you exposure. And the fact now that – another thing, too, all that money that was put into that stadium and into that press box, they put mm-hmm. a ton of money into re, revamping that place. Now all of a sudden you have a problem with it being successful? Do you want to be bad? Like, I don't understand. I just don't get it. You want, you want academics to come first. They can still be good. Even if your football team's good. I mean, we're not hearing, oh, Pine Richland has a bunch of dumb kids, even though they have a good football team. No, it's just their football program is so good, this is what people think about first. That doesn't mean that I've, the academics is, is bad. I've never heard of a single institution, and an academic institution, that sold its soul to the devil to have a good football team and just, like, completely gave up its academics or vice versa. Never heard of that. No. There, there's no reason why you can't have both. And that's totally mentioning, that's totally, well, remembering the fact, and Greg, I'm glad you bring this up when it comes to the academics of the school district, because if you go in the yearly copies of U.S. News and World Report, when they bring up this, this, the studies of the top schools in the country, you know what one of the top schools in this area is year after year? Pine Richland. Pine Richland School District. Yep. So it's not like the school district's that terrible. It's literally ranked every year as one of the top school districts in this region. So it's not like one thing is coming at the expense of the other. Clearly, they're enjoying the best of both worlds. And with, to that end, though, I'll say this much. You, you tell me, you tell me, come up with three names of people from Pine Richland. You know the three I'm going to come up with? Neil Walker, of course, who ended up playing in, in MLB. Um, ben DiNucci, who ended up playing in the NFL with the Dallas Cowboys this past season. And then Phil Dracovic, who's at Boston College and probably has a shot at playing in the NFL as well. Those are the three names I'm going to come up with. And what do they all have in common? All three guys played football at Pine Richland. Yep. 
And in Neil Walker's case, he played basketball and baseball too. And Phil Dracopa played basketball too. It's just like, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold on a second. I can do that with my own high school. If I'm talking about the most famous people from my own high school, you know, you're probably going to talk about Darnell Dinkins, who ended up playing in the NFL. You're probably going to talk about Larry Brown, who was a defensive back for the Washington Redskins way back when. The name Bruno San Martino is going to come up because he was the wrestling champion for so freaking long. Now, you might have some actors and musicians and anything else, but the thing that's going to stand out first are the people who actually brought a lot of attention to the school, whether as students or alumni. That is just the natural thing. So for us to sit here and have to hear this stuff, for the record, there are a lot of times when hazing and youth sports has been an issue. And hazing has become an issue over the years in, in different academic circles and at universities. I mean, how, how often do we hear about a college campus where a fraternity or sorority is in trouble for hazing? It happens about as, as often as you can imagine, right? Yes. So when you use the word hazing and you use that kind of, you know, that kind of situation, you're bringing in a dynamic that is already very largely under scrutiny. So if you've got a claim to that, to that effect, it better be true and it better be credible. Because that's something that school districts and universities and local governments and, and you know, states take seriously. And, and organizations themselves take seriously. So if you can't back that up, it's going to look a lot worse over time. Because all you need is that allegation, whether it's true or not. And it's going to hang over your head. So it might end up being that Eric Kasparov is completely exonerated. Maybe Pine Richland footballs are completely exonerated. But now you've already run that bell and it can't be unrung. So that, that's one of those situations where I think that it's, if you're going to come with accusations and, and allegations like that, you better be able to prove it because if you can't, now you've just caused a huge rift that cannot be fixed over time. I agree. And I think that, I think that the superintendent and the assistant superintendent should have to stand for that. I mean, if, if the, the report is that Kasparovich has reapplied for his job back, as he should. But I, but I also think that, that the, lawyer. I think that the superintendent and the assistant superintendent should not be at Pine Richland anymore if Eric Kasparovich gets his job back because they tried to run him out, and what's to say they're not going to do it again? Yeah, how awkward would that be having to walk into work the next time and seeing two people that tried to fire you? Exactly. Would you want to be in that environment? I wouldn't. No, and I think I would say you can bring me back as long as those two aren't back because if they're here – I'm going somewhere else, and I will be successful because he has proven he can be successful. And let me tell you something. There's some people I used to work for, managers I used to work for in the past, that didn't fire me, and I still want to be in the same room with them. So yeah. let alone if someone actually did fire me, I wouldn't want to be in the room with them. Exactly. It, it's, it's insane. It's, it really does come down to how, how can you let something like this get so out of hand if it's over something personal. That, that bothers me, and it's going to continue to come back to that. But remember what I told you. As long as there have been issues like this in, 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 her, in like, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, in organizational politics, mm -hmm. to put it that way. There's always going to be things like this. But it doesn't make it justifiable, and it doesn't make it okay, especially if you can't prove it to be true. So if that is the case, I hope for Eric Kaffarov's sake, that if the truth does indeed come out, and it does, it does disprove everything he's been accused of, I hope he is properly exonerated. And I hope he does get his job back. Because anybody who hasn't been, you know, found to be proven or 
found or proven to be guilty of things like that should have to go through this. Because we could talk about high school football, high school football, high school football. At the end of the day, it's also the man's livelihood. Now, granted, he does teach at a North Hill school district. He teaches at another school district. But at the same time, you know, that's something that's going to get stapled to every resume you send out after the fact. And it's going to be known that, hey, he got fired from this school for this thing that actually he wasn't even responsible for. Right. So it does tarnish your reputation. And I hope for Eric Kasparovich's sake, if we find out these things are indeed false, that he's properly – that he's properly um, – What's I'm looking for? Just, you know, properly... Uh, Com- compensated. Just, I mean, compensated and, you know, his properly rec- his vindicated. Record, his, record is clean. His, his record is clean. Yeah. Like, if, if we find out that this wasn't true, I hope he is properly vindicated. That's what I was trying to get. Yes. Sorry, I've, I've got Dan Burr and I haven't slept that much in the past two weeks. No, it's okay. No, it. I, I'm glad that we that we talked about this because this has been a big story all week long and... The more and more that we hear about it, the more and more that the superintendent, assistant superintendent are just coming off as babies that aren't getting their way, and they have all the power in the world, and they're trying to run it. And thankfully, the news and sports radio is all on the side of Eric Kasparovich, and they're trying to make things right, and I think that's great. And so we have this platform that we can speak our opinion on it, and – I think it's important that we do. I mean, we talk about we talk about sports at a professional level, but you and I have covered high school football for a while now, and this is this is something we're passionate about. This is a guy that we've worked with. This is a program that we have enjoyed watching and covering, and we don't want to see it get ruined based on nothing. Totally agree. Could not agree more. There's there's just some things that should never be brought to the forefront, especially in situations like these, especially when you have people whose reputations are at stake. Because once that once that gets out there, it's really, really hard to take it back. And I, I hope, I hope for the sake of the people involved that this can get resolved the way it's supposed to be. Same here. Okay. Well, we will, uh, we might come back around to this if we hear more about it later on, but we're going to move on here to baseball. And once again, I'm going to get on my soapbox for a minute, if that's okay. Go for it. You know I'm a Mets fan, and I just don't understand what's going on right now with baseball. I I get that coronavirus is still going on. I understand that players aren't fully vaccinated. I understand that people can still get coronavirus. So the fact that the Mets didn't play on opening day, fine. I get it. The opening weekend series, I get it. You want to be safe, especially with contact tracing. Mm-hmm. Then the next week, they get rained out. So then they play a doubleheader, and they get rained out again. And I understand that rain is a thing, and it's going to push games back. But at the same time, now they're traveling to Colorado. It's the middle of April. It's snowstorming right now in Colorado. We're, we're taping this on Friday night, April 16th. And the Mets were supposed to play the Rockies at 8.05 on Friday night. That's not happening because it's legitimately blizzarding in Colorado. So <laughs> n- so now they're going to play a doubleheader Saturday night pending on weather once again because if it snows, they're not going to play. Josh, how is this fair? First of all, how is this fair that the Mets have only played seven games so far when other teams have played 13? 
How is it? How are they supposed to get into a rhythm when you play every other day, or you got to play two games because of the doubleheader rule? And how does baseball fix this? I I understand that teams need to have home games. Toronto's currently playing home games in Florida, and they don't seem to really mind it. I haven't heard anybody complain about. It. I haven't heard anything in the news that the Blue Jays are mad they're playing in Florida. I think they're just happy they're playing. You don't think that Colorado players wouldn't want to play somewhere warmer right now? You think they want to go out in 32-degree weather and play a baseball game? I don't. So why aren't we moving these colder climate games to warmer areas? You could do it for the playoffs last year whenever you had the playoffs played in Texas or in Los Angeles or in San Diego. Nobody had home field advantage. We're in the beginning of April. Quite frankly, these games don't matter, but you still got to get them in. So my solution is start playing games in warmer areas. I mean, you got all of these spring training facilities. You're telling me Colorado couldn't play baseball for a month at home for home games in Florida? I, I just don't buy it, and I'm sick of it. I've been there for a while. I've been there for a while when you're talking about putting the baseball schedule together for the earlier parts of the season. Now, I know logistically you can always talk about, oh, you can do this or you can do that, and it seems great on paper. But, you know, the truth of the matter is each team, each city is dealing with their own logistical issues and whether or not they can put it together, and that's fine. But if we've learned anything in the aftermath of the coronavirus outbreak, we have learned that if Major League Baseball wants to have baseball games in other cities or in other areas or with warmer climates, they can do it if they wanted to. They had the World Series in a neutral site, in a place where it was actually feasible to be pulled on, where the weather was warm. We've seen bowl games doing it for years, playing in warmer climates, or the Super Bowl for that matter. This whole thing has been possible the entire time. We just choose, well, I shouldn't say we, they just choose to do it the way they want to do it. Does it make sense? No. But is it what they want to do? Yes. And, of course, the reason you're going to hear which is my favorite reason to not do anything, or I should say the worst reason not to not do anything, is that's the way they've always done it. That's the worst reason to do anything, is that's the way it's always been done. We've learned that things can be adjusted. We've learned that on the pro sport. We've learned that on the college sports side. If they are pressed to make some changes because things externally force them to make changes, they're going to do so. And we know they're going to do so. But now, when you don't have to make those changes, which you probably should, now they're not going to. I don't understand why. You know it's the smarter thing to do. You know it's probably the more beneficial thing to do. But Greg, here's why they're not going to do it, and I have to remind people. They're not going to do it because it comes down to money. There's a reason why Toronto is so comfortable playing games in Dunedin, Florida, at their spring training facility right now. Because they're not playing many games in Canada, because they can't with American teams there, because of the crossing the border. But also... Teams really aren't playing with a lot of fans in the stadiums anyway, so they're not making a lot of money in ticket revenue, and you can't lose what you didn't. You can't lose what you didn't have in this particular case. That's why you don't hear people complaining about the Blue Jays playing in Florida. Plus, it's likely we'll complain about playing in Florida for the entire month of April. Just saying. Right. <laughs> but there, there's there's just that dynamic of it, and the truth of the matter is, under the normal circumstances, in order to make this thing work, they're not going to fix it because there's too much money to be made under normal circumstances. So even if we could do this, let's say it's 2022. Let's say we're allowing full capacity back in, in, in ballparks again. 
and we're going to run into the same problem. Why? Because MLB doesn't want to do the thing that makes sense. They want to do the thing that makes them the most dollars, and that is scheduling games in cold climates, knowing that they could get canceled, and oh yeah, by the way, who does that help? Because you're probably going to give fans either tickets, refunds, or ring checks. So does that really help you in the long run? Probably not. And it, it, it's just ridiculous that we seem to have this conversation every year because whatever fan base or whatever team seems to lose out because weather becomes an issue and it never should be. If you make the right and logical decision, it shouldn't be a problem, but it continues to be. So that's why we're in the boat that we're in because it, the, the option of what makes you more money always seems to, to overweigh everything else or outweigh everything else. And that's what's going to take precedent. Is it smart? Eh, depends on who you ask. Is it justified? Depends on who you ask. But does it make sense? Hell no, it doesn't. But that's what it is. I mean, we're in 2021 already, and we're still having rain delays and rain cancellations happen in baseball. I, I understand that, you know, you, not every team can have a dome, and not every team can right. rebuild a ballpark. But in Colorado, don't you think it would be smart to think about maybe rebuilding a stadium and putting a roof over top of it? I mean, Florida, Miami, the Marlins, they have a retractable roof. It's 90 degrees in Miami right now. But it also rains every day in Miami. You can almost set your watch to it. Right. So you got to remember that part. It literally rains every day in Miami. To your point, it, it does seem silly that, you know, we have different facilities that just don't seem to be, you know, that well acclimated to their own climate concerns. And that's been a thing for a while. I mean, that's the same thing with football. It's the same thing. And I think that's started to change over time. That's the same thing at the college drinks. I think it started to really adapt over time because people are just raising the money to pull it off. For me, it comes down to scheduling. I don't understand why the games in the early parts of the season – why they? Why the games are not scheduled in ballparks that either have retractable roofs, or in cities that have the climate that can support it in March or early April, like a Phoenix, like a Tampa, like a San Francisco, like a Miami. Then again, San Francisco that can go either way. San Francisco can have its kind of goofy night weather too, but like in Arlington, or in Anaheim, or in Oakland, or in LA, or a San Diego, or a Houston or in Atlanta, I, I don't understand why we keep running into these. How many did it rattle off already, eight or nine? Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, if you can't you know, put all 15 games in parking and chilling, right? Dunedin's got a park. Bradenton's got a park. Uh, Vero Beach, Florida, I believe, still has a park. There's one in Orlando that the, that the Braves play in. There's one in Tampa that the Yankees play in. There's one in Fort Myers that, I believe there's still in Fort Myers that the Red Sox play in. It's hard to keep up with all the different spring training facilities. They change year over year. And I'm pretty sure Port St. Lucie still has where the Mets train for spring training. Correct. They have major league-sized ballparks in those places. If it comes to the point where, okay, we can do it this way, fine. Stay at your spring training facilities for two more weeks. You've been there, what, two and a half months? What's two more weeks going to kill you? And what's what's the, it going to hurt you being there? And what's well, I guess point, it's a month and a half, but still. What's the point of having spring training? Uh, so they can go and get ready for the season in warm climate weather where they don't have to deal with cold climate. So then all of a it's sudden, it, we, we flip the, the calendar to April when it still could snow in Colorado, in Pittsburgh, in New York. 
And they go, well, oh, well. <laughs> what? Right. You, so look, using that logic, logic, okay, let's fly you in, you know, early, you know, early February, late January. Let's fly you down to Florida or in the case of the Cactus League, Arizona, where you can train in warm weather because you play a warm weather sport. And, oh, yeah, after two months, if you've been down for two months from the beginning of the season, we're sending you back to where you were with the terrible climate. Good luck. What? Yep. What are, we, what are we doing here? What are, what's going on here? It, if you want to tell me that owners are worried about losing on the gate, um, how many TV contracts have you guys signed for hundreds of millions of bucks? I'm sure a couple of games worth of tickets ain't going to hurt you. Exactly. And, it's just not going to hurt you. And people now. from Colorado would love to fly to Florida and watch their baseball team play instead of sit in the snow. Not to mention the fact that it's something that fans do every year traveling to either Arizona or Florida for spring training. Exactly. And now that they're going to play meaningful exactly baseball it. games? You don't think people are going to want to go see that? I do. I, I struggle to understand why that particular logic is just omitted, why it just seems to be ignored. And everybody knows logistically it's possible. Now, if you wanted to tell me that, you know, there's a logistical issue as far as the spring training, uh, spring training facilities, Okay, fine. If you have to actually break all that down, then fine. But as of right now, if they're spending that much time there already, what seriously two more weeks are going to hurt them? I think it just comes down to let's not change anything because we like making money so much as opposed to let's do the smart thing because it's still going to make us money at the end of the day. But then again, Greg, we're talking too much sense. Maybe that's my happening because it makes too much sense. And the record that this sport is dying and they don't seem to care. Like, they don't seem to care that the fans that actually like this game would appreciate that they actually play instead of get rained out or snowed out. But instead, they go, well, because we've been doing it this long, let's just keep doing it. Well, what you've been doing for this long has made baseball fans pretty angry. And some of the things that you've changed are some of the dumbest things that you could have thought of. And here we are now having this conversation again about something that should be changed that isn't, but then other things that they're talking about changing – Shouldn't be. Transitioning to the next topic about baseball, Josh. They want to move the pitching mound back. This is a thing. Rob Manfred is experimenting this in low A ball where they move the pitching mound back. Okay. Question number one. Why do we have to do this? Well, too many guys are hitting home runs. Well, that's because you juice the baseballs. That's what happens whenever you juice the baseballs. Question number two. What kind of bad things could happen from doing this? A lot of injuries could happen from doing this. Do they seem to care about that? No. If a pitcher has been throwing from where he's been throwing his entire major league career, and now you're going to move him back some, now he's going to have to throw it harder from further away. You don't think that's going to cause arm issues? I do. And that's not going to hurt the game whenever your number one pitcher gets hurt because he's throwing from further away? I see a problem here. Do you? Yeah, because my issue is, why don't you just raise the mound again? It was easier to raise the mound or lower the mound. Why don't you just raise it again? If you want to get pitchers an advantage again, just raise the mound back up. Right. Uh, it's just, we've seen that in years past. Okay, MLB's going to lower the mound because pitchers are dominant. MLB's going to raise the mound because too much offense. You can't just do that. Yeah. I'm I don't see. understand why this can become such a complicated thing, and I think you're right from an injury standpoint. Now, granted... Some will tell you that there's ways around it that they can train differently, and you know it's not a secret that you know 
not only just pitchers, but players in general, but play long toss in order to build a throwing strength. So it's not like it's that impossible, but to your point, you're telling an entire league that they've got to make this investment. So all 30 teams are going to have to do this, and you wonder how long it's going to take for them to do it. The second thing is, how does this affect player performance? And how does this affect teams' investment in those players? Let's say a pitcher that's dominant, and I don't want to do this. I'm not going to make it seem like a picket on you. But let's say Jacob DeGrom. After the mound gets moved back, Jacob DeGrom goes from arguably most dominant pitcher in MLB to just average show. Right. And now the Mets have him signed. Let's say the Mets have him signed to for some ridiculous contract. Now they're not going to want to honor it. And, and I use DeGrom as an example, not that his, you know, his value is high on the market right now as far as you know, what he's earning, but it does make you question – just how much it can have a domino effect that touches everything around the game. To that effect, I say, you know what? Then raise it. Raise the mound and see where this goes, as opposed to trying to move it back or move it around and all this other stuff. Raise the mound. You've done it before. You do the more sensible thing. And the other sensible thing is, I'm with you. Do something about the baseballs. College baseball had that problem for a while. You know what college baseball did? They fixed the baseballs. I shouldn't say they fixed them, but they found a way whether they were wound tighter or they changed the, the composition or whatever. College baseball found a way to deaden the baseballs because why? Because they're using space-age alloy and aluminum in the bats in college baseball. And they weren't going to be able to implement other materials used for the bats, so what do you do? You deaden the ball. It's not impossible. It's just a matter of going to Rawlings or Spalding or whoever has the ball and says, hey, we're going to change it because you have that right to do that. You're in charge of the league. You can do whatever the hell you want to as long as it's agreed upon by the owners and the players. But if you're not going to make the effort to do it, don't insult our, don't insult our intelligence to make you think you're going to do something different. It, it just it doesn't have to be this way, and they just choose to make it complicated. And they, juiced, and they juiced the baseballs before, and whenever he was asked about it, Manfred said, no, we didn't change anything with the baseballs. And then they went ahead and investigated it and said it's very well confirmed that they did. So oh, Wait, 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 right, right. The league that turned a blind eye to steroids for over a decade all of a sudden juiced the baseballs and didn't tell anybody? Wow. You're, you're serious. I've never guys? seen that coming. <laughs> also the fact, Josh, if they move the mound back, don't they have to realign the entire baseball field? They would have to change up the entire diamond. You would be correct. And that is a huge pain. I mean, that that's not necessary. It's just not. <laughs> Either that or you'd have to change how players play defense. And once again, it's one of those things, there's too many ripple effects. The butterfly effect from all of it might be too much for the game to recover from, or it might be to the point where it affects players, or it it becomes a situation where something bad happens, and we're like, oh, man, this could have been prevented. Yeah, because you decided to do something that didn't didn't fix anything. Right. Okay, and then I have one more uh, topic here for baseball. Uh, you know that Josh and I love baseball, but we also like to rip on it because it's fl- it's a flawed game. It just is. And, uh, Josh, I heard you talk about this on your radio show on 93.7 The Fam this past weekend about instant replay. And we've been having text conversation about this for a long time. If you're going to have instant replay, you better get it right. And I've seen it multiple times now this season – that they haven't gotten it right after reviewing it. So what are we doing here? I haven't figured this out because I, I don't know. I, I, I literally talked about this. We talked about this a few different times. And the problem is if you're going to have replay, have replay 
for the benefit and for the actual purpose of making sure the right call is made. Don't say, oh, we have to confirm this, we have to confirm that, we can't return it, we can't. Ever. You know what? you got to start taking ego out of this place. And let's not kid ourselves. When, as long as there have been umpires in baseball, umpires have had egos. There are some that are notorious for having egos. No matter how much they screw up, their egos get bigger. And it's insane. It's absolutely insane. When you have a call on the field and the replay confirms that call, I don't care who the umpire is. I don't care how long he's been doing it. I don't care how accurate he's been in the past. If he gets it wrong, make sure you get it right. Because here's the thing. These calls are going to eventually, over time, they're going to cost someone a game. It's going to cost a manager a game he probably should have won that it didn't happen that it was supposed to. And that manager probably gets fired for failing to meet his team's goals because of the ripple effect of one call he had nothing to do with and it could have been corrected if someone with a brain said, hey, this is what we're seeing in front of us. It's not what we called. Let's get it right. And I don't understand why I've all sports. Actually, I do understand why I've all sports baseball is that problem because baseball's had a huge problem with not being able to get out of its own way. So I do know why. Maybe I just don't understand why. But it does come down to getting the ego out of the way. And here's the problem. If umpires would just come out and admit and say, hey, you know what? This is a much faster game than it used to. It's hard to keep up with everything happening at the same time. We were talking about pitchers where you have pitching staff or just staff where just about everybody can throw 92, 93 miles an hour or faster. You got a couple guys that can touch tri triple digits in the gun on probably on average. Velocity is now a much more maligned and much more, I should say much less aligned and much, much, much less maligned and much more valuable thing when it comes to pitchers. That's been a thing already. So I don't, I don't understand when you have a system that's set up, and that system has, I won't say it's been compromised, but it's been made more difficult. Because in every sport, players are bigger, they're stronger, they're faster. And one of the oldest things that you learn over time in physics is that force equals mass times acceleration. So what happens when players are bigger, stronger, faster? You're going to see bigger collisions. You're going to see things happening quicker. Some things might not be caught with the human eye right away. And I think that inability for umpires to admit, you know what, sometimes we don't catch it because things are just happening too damn fast. We just can't keep up with all of it. We need to confirm that everything's okay. We need to confirm that we got this right. We need to make sure we got this wrong. Just admit that part. And they're not able to do that. So until they're able to admit, you know what, we don't always get it right because we don't always see everything because sometimes things are just too fast for the naked eye. Just admit it. It doesn't make you less of a person. If anything, it's the freaking human condition that gets in the way. I hate when people say, oh, it's the human element in baseball. The human element sometimes screws baseball up because humans aren't made to get everything right. Exactly. We're not designed to be perfect at everything. So if you have people that are using their livelihoods to be a part of this game, people that are paying, paying money out of their pocket to, to see the games, people that are paying out of their pocket to be able to watch the games if they're at home, wherever location it may be, and that's not at the stadium, there's a lot of money wrapped up in this. The least you can do is put everybody who's either investing money or time into this to put them at ease knowing that, hey, we're either going to get it right or we're going to make our best effort to make sure we get the right thing if it's wrong at first so we can actually make this game what it should be. And one of the things about baseball, and I love how people try to sell baseball so great because it's flawed. No, that doesn't what makes it, that's not what makes it great. What makes it great is that it's able to bring people together. But here's the thing. If you want to bring people together, if you want to give people something 
that they can enjoy watching, wouldn't you rather be under the best circumstances possible? Yes. Shouldn't that be the ideal? If you have something that, if, whether it's entertainment or any other kind of purpose, shouldn't it be the best that it could possibly be? Isn't it like that in any other kind of realm, in any other sector? What makes baseball any different? And what makes MLB so high and mighty that they can't decide, hey, let's make this the best that it could be, instead of let's just keep doing it the way it's always been? Which, once again, I will reiterate, is the dumbest reason to keep doing something. Just do it right and make sure it's the best for everybody involved. I don't think that's too much to ask. It's not, and I couldn't agree more with you. I'm I'm really tired of instant replay, getting it wrong, when everybody else can see at the ballpark, in their seats, or at home watching on TV, and they have more cameras in New York when they're reviewing it. They have more angles than we do, and they still right. find a way to get it wrong. So I just think if Major League Baseball wants to continue with instant replay, I think they need a new system, Josh. I think they need to go to the NFL system, where the actual officials at the game, or at the NBA, I guess, the actual officials at the game get to watch it and make their own decision. And they call, they yes. can call New York and be like, hey, here's what we called, and here's what we're thinking, and this is what we're going with, and what do you think? Well, I agree with you, or I disagree. Then they can have a conversation. But instead of a four-minute phone call well, that they can't even see what's going on, and they're just relying on a guy in a in a booth watching a flat screen TV showing what's going on, and then he can get it wrong. They need to they need to fix this. It, it's taking too long to make calls still be wrong, is is my big takeaway from this, and the fact too. Non reviewable plays should not exist. Everything should be reviewable. If you get called on strike three and it's four feet outside because the umpire, you know, went blind for a second and he said strike three, you should be allowed to challenge that and be like, look, that's not a strike. And you just cost me a baseball game. I I think that you should be limited to that, though, because you're going to argue balls and strikes every pitch. But there, there needs to be accountability for umpires and their egos. And you talked about the ego. I agree with you. It has become an ump show. Now, what the umpire says is what goes, and if you argue, he'll throw you out. If you say a word, now they're throwing you out. Which is, which in and of itself is just, you know, if you can't admit the fact that you aren't, you know, completely 100% right all the time, if you can't make that admission, then why are we wasting our time? trying to act like so many people are fallible. I think it's I think it's just stupid. It, I can sit here and talk all day about the the problems that baseball has, that it could be better. And I'll, I'll come right back to the same thing I said before. If you're not making an effort to make it the best that it could possibly be, and you're one of the reasons standing in the way, then maybe you should get out of the way, because clearly you're the problem. But until people fix what's going on, until people start to fix some of these... these um, these operational procedures, it's going to keep being this way. And it, it doesn't help that baseball as a sport has already let its fans down too many times. It let its fans down when it, when it had a strike almost 25 years ago. Actually, it was 25 years ago, more than 25 years ago. It's nearly 30 years now. But baseball made fans angry with the whole steroid scandal, with the whole steroid era and that whole scandal behind it. When they knew for years that certain players were using steroids. And all of a sudden, it took pressure from the U.S. government to really change things around. 
They were the only major sport that did not test for steroids. And for years, I was like, oh, well, you know, we don't need to do that. And all of a sudden, they did, and now they're just trying to pop everybody. It's like, wait a minute. You knew this was going on before it went down. Before the testing went down, all of a sudden, you want to change your tune. There have been too many times when this sport has let its fans down because it doesn't want to be the best that it can be. And until it gets to that point, fans are going to continue to be let down. Now, granted, the one thing that's saving their hide is they've had crazy media and TV deals that have been able to keep them floated financially. So maybe it feels like they don't have a need to do this right away. What happens if you start getting all these TV deals and people start stop watching? You think the TV deals are going to keep coming? Good luck with that. Make it the best that it can be for no other reason. If you're not going to do it for your own integrity's sake, do it for the people that actually want you to see this, want to see this product and want, this to, and want it to be the best that it can be. Not because you think it's something that doesn't need to be done because it's inconvenient to you or it makes your ego look bad. That's just, it, it, it cheats everybody out of something that should be enjoyed for everybody. Well said. Agreed 100%. And I think uh, I think we've we've uh, we've said our piece on our displeasure for baseball. So uh, one last thing I want to talk about here before we go to break, and then we'll uh, play our favorite news headline game to wrap up the show. The, the Pittsburgh Pirates had a pretty good week, Josh. <laughs> they went they uh, they split with the Padres, and I don't think many people saw that coming. And they had a chance to win three out of four with the Padres. Uh. I think looking at that series, it helped a ton that the Padres did not have Fernando Tatis Jr. It helped a ton Mm -hmm. that Will Myers was out for half the series with an injury. But at the same time, the Pirates' bats were teeing off against some of the best pitchers, including Blake Snell. So Didn't didn't last an inning. Right. So I'm not saying, you know, hey, is this team legit? Because we we all know the answer there. But – I'm just saying, this team can surprise you whenever you don't see it coming. Because I think a lot of people penciled in, they were probably going to get three, lose three out of four at best, or they were going to get swept. And they went ahead and split a series with the Padres. And we talked about this before the season. We were talking about the win-loss total for this team. This is why I set the over. I believe our over-under total was either 58 or 59 and a half wins. And I'm sitting there telling myself, this team is not a fewer than 60-win team. Are they a 70-win team? No, probably closer to 60 or 65. But are they a 55-win team? No. I didn't think they would because at the end of the day, you still have some guys who have been around baseball long enough to know how to play the game at the level they're supposed to. Now, does it make them contenders? Absolutely not. But there are some guys that can still play. Guys like Jacob Stallings. Jacob Stallings is actually a very adequate major league catcher. You may not want to believe it because but Jacob Sullivan is actually a pretty good catcher. And he can make some plays here and there or come up with some big hits here and there that either score his team runs offensively or save his team runs on defense. It's not a crazy statement to say so. Same thing with Kevin Newman. Can make some plays every once in a while or come up with a big hit every once in a while. Same thing with Brian Reynolds. Can come up with a hit every once in a while or make a big play every once in a while. Because he's still major leaguers at the end of the day. Are they as high caliber? No. But are they major leaguers still? Yes, and they can probably do most of what you know, us normal human beings, or I shouldn't say normal, but us lay people, so to speak, can do. And they can do it way more consistently than we can. So you're going to have days when those guys are doing the right things that help them win against teams like the Padres. There are going to be days when they look absolutely terrible and get stomped by Cincinnati. It's just 
This is how this game goes. You can excel at it, and it can also humble you. So maybe we're talking about the wrong side of it. Maybe we should talk. We should be talking about the game humbling the, the Padres because of their own issues and their injury situations, and the Pirates just happen to be the team that they ran into at the wrong time that benefited from it. And the truth of the matter is that happens across baseball. Hot streaks and slumps are part of the game, both on the personal and team level. If you're in a team in the middle of a slump or playing in the middle of a slump, sometimes it just comes down to the, the team or the guy you run into that benefits the position that you're in right now. And that's what the Pirates, I think, ran into when it came to the Padres. They limped in the PNC Park, and the Pirates split four games with them. It just, it's sometimes how it goes. Baseball is so unpredictable, Greg, and you and I both know this, that you can see a 400 team beat a 600 team. Does it happen often? No, but it can happen twice in three games, and you're wondering how do we get here. And then you get to the next series, and maybe you win two out of three as a 600 team over a 550 team. Or maybe if you're a 530 team, you sweep a 600 team in an entire three-game series. You never know what's going to happen from game to game, which is part of why people watch to begin with. So I agree with you. Are we saying that the Pirates of this team have suddenly become contenders? No, absolutely not. There's still too many, there's still too many holes that haven't been filled for that to be the issue. But are you going to see teams that become a foil for a team that's supposed to be a lot better? Absolutely. It's going to happen. It's just how the game goes. Baseball is such an up-and-down sport, and you have to be able to deal with the, the downs because most of the time the downs occur a lot more frequently than the ups do. We're, we're pretty excited that Fernando Tatis Jr. is back for this weekend series against the Dodgers because, you know, you and I have been hyping up how big these games are going to be all season long, and the Padres aren't the same team without that guy. So the fact that they got him back after being said to be out for four to six weeks and he was only out for, what, nine games? As mm-hmm. long as he actually looks okay and doesn't re-injure himself, what a huge turn of events that is for this weekend series. Yeah, to get a bat like that back in your lineup, and this is a guy who just signed a big contract, he is the face of the MLB The Show 21 baseball game. Fernando Tatis Jr. became a star pretty damn quickly and with good reason. So you get that bat, that bat back in the lineup, your offense is going to look a lot more deep, it's going to look a lot more potent, and you probably turn your lineup over a lot easier than you probably have during the nine games when he didn't play. All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to play our favorite news headline game. I got a really fun one for Josh. It's non-sports related, but a friend of mine from college sent me this story, and I was like, okay, I have to use this on the show. So uh, we'll talk about that coming up next on the Sunday Morning Grind podcast. You're listening to the Sunday Morning Grind Podcast with Greg Finley and Josh Taylor. Check us out on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and Anchor. Also, follow us on Twitter at Sunday, M-O-R-N, Grind. That's Sunday Morning Grind on Twitter. We cover Pittsburgh sports and national sports. Be sure to tune into the podcast each and every week. Now, back to the podcast. You hear the music, that means it's time to get crazy. Welcome back to the Sunday Morning Grind podcast, Saturday edition. By the way, this is episode 12 of the Sunday Morning Grind podcast. So, Josh, do you have a number 12 that you would like to dedicate this to? I thought about this quite a bit, and I was trying to figure out who would make a lot of sense 
as a number 12 that our listeners might, might be able to, you know, um, relate to. And I couldn't think of one until I went back to my, my younger days when I remember one of the weirdest plays that ever happened in my, my young time as a baseball fan. And I'm going to go all the way back to a guy that a lot of people probably remember, but not for the reasons that you think. I'm going to go with the Turner Ward episode of this podcast because of Turner Ward making one of the most insane, infamous plays that we've ever seen when he went through the wall <laughs> at Three River Stadium in the late 90s. Still one of the coolest things I've ever seen to this day. I actually remember playing in a game at Three River Stadium. Our league championship game was at Three River Stadium when I was, I want to say, 16. And the outfielders were supposed to be warming up in the outfield and were taking turns trying to jump into the wall that Turner Ward ran through. We got yelled at so bad for not actually dragging flies because we're trying to jump through the wall being goofy on the day of the championship game. It's kind of ridiculous. But yeah, I will go with Turner Ward for the number 12 episode in his infamous trek through the Three River Stadium wall. I like that pick. That's a good one. I was going to go with like Bradshaw, but I like yours a lot better. It's too easy to pick Bradshaw. you got to pick something infamous. It's easy, it's easy to pick something famous. It's harder to pick something infamous. Right. That's why we went with Kent Graham last week. <laughs> exactly. we got to make it interesting, man. Right. All right. So we're already getting crazy already. And so that that just takes us right to this segment here. The is We're on to Is This a Thing? And uh, Josh and I will go through some news headlines throughout the week. And we will text each other and be like, hey, is this actually like something that is real news or is this something that we don't need to pay attention to? Or as Josh calls it, fake news. <laughs> I can't do the Trump, so I, you know, I had to call you on for that. Okay. I really need to call Matt Fargo and just have Matt Fargo say fake news and make it a clip and we can just drop it. Yeah, we'll just get a drop of that. I like it. Fargo's so much better at it. Shout out to Matt Fargo. <laughs> okay. I'm going to start with. Uh, Joe Musgrove being on 93.7 The Fan this past week and how he talked about, he talked to the morning show and he said that apparently the players on the Pirates, him, Tyone, and uh, might have been one more. They all talked about how they, they wanted to come back and get this team going again for this season, how they thought they were just a couple of pieces away Oh, Josh Bell, of course. They were just a couple of pieces away from really putting together a team that could compete and that the front office had different ideas. So I got to ask, is uh, is my guy Joe Musgrove just, like, making stuff up here, or does he actually think that last year's team could become a contender in a 162-game season this year? I'm never one to tell someone that what they're thinking is crazy. Actually, it's not true. I am someone to tell someone what they're thinking is crazy. I'll say this when it comes to players. When a player says, okay, we thought we could have been able to do this, we thought we could have been able to do that, I'm not going to sit there and argue with you. If you think you can do it, fine. If you thought you could have had a good team, fine. But I will say that history and the evidence flies in the face of that. Because if we're talking about a team that was a couple pieces away from contending, I don't know many teams that go 69 and 93 and only need a couple pieces to become a contender. And that's exactly what the 2019 Pirates were. 
You know who was on that pitching staff in 2019? Joe Musgrove. Joe Musgrove in that season threw 170 innings, struck out 157 guys, pretty good numbers, 4.44 ERA, which is a little bit probably above the average level. But putting independent pitching, his FIP was 382. So you can argue that Joe, Joe Musgrove had an average season for as far as pitchers. He started 31 games, and his record was 11 and 12. As far as his particular performance, you can argue that Joe Musgrove had the average season for Major League Sport, and he was the best on this staff two seasons ago. Right. I don't know what, what pieces that this team could have added that they could either A, afford, or B, already had in their own system that could, they could have added and called up. They didn't. did not have those pieces to do it. And they weren't going to be able to do it with just the guys they had there. And it also doesn't help the fact that the guy who was their closer that season, uh, yeah, he's he's not playing baseball probably again ever. So, and I'm talking about Felipe Vasquez. His right. baseball days are long since done, thanks to the judicial system. So. What, what other pieces are we talking about being added here? Because you're talking about a Pittsburgh team where either the market doesn't have the resources, or should say this particular individual market doesn't have the resources to make this team a contender by bringing in outside guys, and it doesn't have the internal talent to promote them to make this team better. So where are the pieces going to come from? Did, did he because we knew the current group get could get it done. Or something? Yeah, it's like, who do you think was going to come in in free agency? Who do you think was going to make such a big leap from, from 2019 to 2020? The only thing I can look at and say, okay, this might have made you a little bit better, is Jamison Tyon returning from an injury. That would have made you a little bit better. But from 69 wins to current playoff contender better? I don't think so. As much as I respect Joe Musgrove as a player, as much as I respect him as a person, I think he's an outstanding guy. And I'm really, really happy for him that he threw the first no-hitter in Padres history a week ago. But at the same time, i got to disagree with this. There's no way this is a thing. Couldn't agree more. And I, I, I uh, echo what you just said. The San Diego kid throwing the first ever no hitter in Padres history—that's pretty cool story. What you what you got, Josh? Okay, we are going to talk on the college basketball recruiting side. I've seen some crazy things happen in recruiting in my time. I've actually had a situation where I had to report on a college football prospect whose mom stole his letter of intent. From his high school and left the building it left the building because she didn't want him to sign it because she didn't want him to go to the school he was going to sign with. And it became national news. And this is for a team I was covering. So I've seen and heard a lot of crazy stuff. This is a fun one though. Basketball recruit name is Efton Reed. Now Efton Reed was being recruited by quite a few schools. Uh, University of Pittsburgh was one of them, Florida State was one of them, I believe LSU was one. And at one point, and this was just within the past 24 hours, Efton Reed's mom decided she wanted to tweet, Mama Bear has spoken. Efton Reed's commitment has been postponed. Stay tuned. Greg, I will ask you this question. Recruits mothers getting involved and messing up the recruitment process. Is this a thing? <laughs> uh, yeah, it is, because we're seeing it right now. <laughs> and, and we've seen it before. It wasn't uh. Wasn't Robert Foster going to pick Pitt, and then like his parents, you know, they were they were involved with the whole decision, and he ended up not picking Pitt. I mean, we've seen this happen before. I can't remember exactly what the details were, 
as far as Robert Foster, but yeah, I know there was something that kind of changed at the last minute. But the story I was talking about was Alex Collins with Arkansas. That I actually do know happened. <laughs> that I can actually confirm happened. And it, it's just I've seen and heard some weird, weird things. So I got to go yes with this. And it, it doesn't help the fact that recruiting is such a crazy, crazy element of college sports. And people just go way overboard with it sometimes, and it just drives me absolutely up the wall. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we had people that were actually tweeting back to this kid's mom saying, oh, Sam, bring him here, bring him here, bring him to Florida State, bring him to Pitt. I'm like, oh, my God. We're tweeting at recruiting mothers now. <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> Stop being creepy. Stop tweeting at recruits to come to your school. Stop sending them angry tweets when they don't choose your school and stop tweeting their parents. Like, what, what are we doing here? Well, what's his mom tweeting that like Mama Bear has spoken for? Like, she didn't think that that was going to get looked at as something weird? <laughs> there's, there's a reason why. There's a reason why there's a tweet button there. Because you can always choose not to click it. Yes. <laughs> you can type it out. Because when you type it out, it does not have to post itself. Exactly. You can still choose to hit the tweet button. And I don't know why. I mean, and she's not the only one. There's other people that make it just as awkward and make it just as ridiculous through social media. But, yeah, it, there's a reason why you have the choice of clicking the tweet button. You don't have to say it just because it ran through your head. I believe Mark Twain had a pretty good saying about that. Better to be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. Or in this, in this case, tweet it out and remove all doubt. Yeah, this is definitely a thing. That's, that's great. <laughs> okay, I got one here. Uh, we talked about this earlier this week, too, whenever we were watching one of the uh, the Giants were playing the Reds, and it was a day game. And I forget what his first name is, but his last name is Dubon for the Giants. And Oh, Mauricio Dubon. Yeah, Mauricio Dubon. And he hit a pop-up in the air, and the second baseman for the Reds went out to catch it. And it clearly hits off of his glove, and it was clearly an error. And <laughs> Dubon reaches first base, and shout out to uh, Kuiper and Kruko for the Giants. They were like, "Well, that's definitely an error." And, and Kuiper goes, "Wait a minute, they're calling this a hit." And Kruko goes, "Well, it benefits you whenever your uncle is the scorekeeper." So I have to ask, <laughs> having your uncle as the scorekeeper. Boosting your stats from an error to a hit. Is this a thing? <laughs> oh, it sounds like a thing. It, it sounds like a thing. We might have to keep an eye on Mauricio Dubon's stats in, in home games for the rest of the season. If, if he's playing at, at was AT&T Park now, yes. you might have to pay attention to it. That's all I'm saying. How do you get away it with sounds that? sounds like a thing to me. How are you not held accountable? Like, if you're sitting next to the official score, you don't go, really? That's a hit? <laughs> like... It's like, yep, that's a hit. It's already – we've already talked about the different issues that baseball already has that just re- refuse to fix. When you have non-partial people serving as independent arbiters, as as official scorers, well, there you go. It, it's going to be – it's going to be that way. And it's one of, those, one of those things I also think needs to be fixed. And, but until they do, yeah, this is a thing. All right, what's the next one you got? The next one I have, this is an interesting story in the event that, it's a, first of all, it's a lot more serious. But second of all, it's 
it's also something that can be potentially dangerous. And this comes, I want to make sure I have the information correct here. This comes from Baxter Holmes. He is the senior national NBA writer for ESPN. He tweeted this out earlier in the week. He said, NBA GMs and team health officials fear the compressed schedule is leading to a rash of injuries and that player health is reaching a boiling point. So my question to you, Greg, and this is in light of the fact that the coronavirus pandemic has made things complicated for just about every sport. Basketball had to eventually, you know, um, reserve itself to its own bubble to complete the season, and this season came around and travel has been crazy and the schedule has been kind of jammed together. Mm-hmm. Um, with all of that said, the NBA and its, you know, condensed schedule, making it harder for players to stay healthy and making a bigger injury concern throughout the season. Is this a thing? I think it is a thing. And based on that that report, uh, according to the Elias Sports Bureau, 2021 All-Stars have missed 15% of games this season, on pace to be the second highest rate in NBA history. Look at it, look at it from this standpoint. Uh, Thursday night, the Lakers and the Celtics played on national TV. LeBron and Anthony Davis did not dress. It was hard to watch if you're a basketball fan. You know why they didn't dress? Because they've been hurt for a while now. And it's not just the Lakers. A lot of teams are dealing with injuries, and it's not just, well, it's just a bench guy, I mean, the next next man up. No, this is star talent where people actually, like people that go to the game or watch the game, these are the guys that you actually want to watch. And you're already dealing with big-name injuries. Durant has been out for more than half the season. Klay Thompson's been out for the entire season. Steph Curry's been out for probably half the season. These big-name guys are getting hurt because of this condensed schedule. It's ridiculous. I mean, in the NBA season, on a regular season, they probably have, what, three, four nights off, and they play two or three games a week? Now it's every other day you're playing a game. Because they got to get these games in. And it's getting to the point now. I mean, they're playing games in the afternoon, Josh. I saw I saw the other day mm-hmm. the Nets and the Timberwolves played like a 2 o'clock in the afternoon game. There was a game earlier in the afternoon when we recorded this on Friday. I, I, I don't get it. I, I, I get that you're trying to get these games in, but at the same time, is it really that big of a deal that you push the playoffs back one week because you got to get these games in, but not burn out the players? Yeah, it just it, we're already talking about an era of basketball already where it becomes more of a, a normal thing where preserving players' energy and sitting there for games at a time or one game here and there to preserve their energy down the road. But now this kind of flies in the face of all of that. If anything, you know, the thoughts of trying to conserve energy and, and rationing out playing time and guys play, taking certain nights off, this kind of supports it now. This becomes a, a, an arrow in their quiver, so to speak. Because now they're like, look, yeah, there's a reason why we don't want to play so many games because we do this and we get hurt. So, yeah, we need to take a game off here and there. Because mm. we're playing every game, with the schedule playing every, playing every other night, we're having to travel and all this stuff. This is what we're looking at. We get seriously injured and hurt our own livelihoods. So now you're just giving the players more ammunition and more argument to do what they've been doing as far as not playing any games. And Greg, you and I talk about this all the time. We'll watch certain games and be like, oh, this guy's not playing. He's sitting tonight. Or this guy's doing load management tonight. Or this guy's not in the lineup. Now they're giving justification for it. By having this crazy schedule, that puts more players at risk. So, yeah, it, it does make it more complicated as far as how you try to ration playing time out, how you make this all make sense. I think it's definitely a thing. 
I couldn't agree more. And it's a shame that the league isn't picking up on this. The, the, we're the ones that are picking up on this, but the league doesn't see anything wrong with it. They're like, well, next man up, LeBron and AD are out, too bad. Lakers are still playing tonight. It's like, no. Like, don't you care that your product stinks right now because your best guys are out? And load management before I was annoyed by it. I was like, oh, Kawhi's taking a night off. Now I get it. They need to take a night off because they're playing so much, especially this year with the condensed schedule. Like I said, they're playing four nights a week, four or five nights a week. They're playing every other day. It's exactly. It's, it, it's too hard. And, and it's one of those things where people say, oh, it wasn't like this before. It wasn't like this before. Yeah, because you weren't trying to deal with a global pandemic before. Exactly. So let's not stop trying to compare things that aren't the same. All right. I got one more, and this is the big one that I've been hyping up. So I hope it lives up to the oh, hype. Oh, boy. I hope it lives up to the Here hype and you're not disappointed. <laughs> okay. So, in, I believe it's called Krakow, a Polish city of Krakow, animal welfare officers were called out to a sighting of an unusual animal squatting in a residential area. Their initial reaction was this must be a late April Fool's joke. And people aren't opening their windows because they're afraid it will go into their house, a woman said when she called. So, this woman called these people and said uh, uh, a creature had been sitting in a tree across the road for two days and they're worried about what it is. So the animal police officers, they're the animal welfare officers go out and check this out and they look at it and they're like, oh, okay, this is a pretty big thing and like, you know, stay, stay away from it. So they go and investigate it. It's a croissant, Josh. <laughs> Wait, wait, wait. You mean this in, like, the French form of bread? Yes. A big piece of croissant was in a tree, and this lady thought it was a big, giant bird that was going to attack her. It was a croissant. Oh, my God. (laughs) So, my question to you is, of course, (laughs) should we be afraid of croissants? Is this a thing? (laughs) (laughs) Fear of croissants. Is that a, is that an actually like um officially like confirmed phobia in, in that manual? I'm not sure, but yeah. Um, if it's not, maybe it should be confirmed as a thing. Maybe there's a phobia that should be you know recognized as a fear of croissants. I don't know. I'd have to try to look that up. But at this rate, there's a fear of a lot of different things. So fear of giant croissants may be the thing. I'm not sure, but yeah, that's about the weirdest thing I've ever heard. And to your point, you know, like when someone thinks it's a giant bird, why didn't a giant bird swoop down and eat that thing by now? That's that's the bigger question I have. How does a giant croissant end up in the tree? Who takes a croissant into a tree and says, hey, I'm going to leave this year? Or they take it with them with the intent of actually eating it and didn't finish it. And if they didn't finish it, what happened that caused them to not finish the croissant? Greg, I have so many questions. As to how this I just... I don't. I don't get it. it. Just makes no sense to me. We got to go back to the tape. We got to get. We got to get video replay review of where this thing appeared from, how it got there, and and why it, it didn't move. So obviously it wasn't a bird. I mean, it was sitting there for two days. It's obviously not who a bird. Dec- who decided that either a I'm going to throw this croissant up in this tree, or b I'm going to climb into this tree and take this croissant with me? As opposed to any other piece of food or any food at all. Like, I, I have so many questions. So many questions. <laughs> they, they, Who goes into a tree with a croissant? I don't, I don't understand. 
the the funny part is that the officer actually thought that it was a bird. He said the poor guy had no legs or head. He said the pair were almost swept off their feet by a laughing attack when they realized the animal was in fact a flaky pastry croissant. <laughs> How does something that has no head or legs going to be dangerous? Uh, what? Because <laughs> even snakes have heads and they're dangerous. Uh, I, I'm I'm glad that you you found humor in that. I'm glad I didn't. Is, I'm glad I didn't hype it up too much, and it wasn't a huge bust because I thought that was hilarious. This part this is probably the best non sequitur we probably have on the show ever. Like this is incredible. <laughs> I have so many questions. I'm I'm gonna have to look the story up and be like, wait a minute. So how how did the croissant get there? That might be the greatest mystery. We, we got to get Telly Davalos on here and have him bring back Columbo to find out. How this croissant ended up in this tree? Like, I'm, I'm going to be worried about this for days now. Josh, should we? I'll have, be up at night. Should we have the officer oh. on? Should we have the officer on to explain it with us? I, I, I might have some questions for him. Like, it's just, did you find the person responsible for the croissant? Are there are there any suspects as to, or persons of interest that might have any idea as to how the croissant ended up there? This is something I need to know. I'm going to be up late changing my son's diaper one night. Just wonder. I wonder if they think that I left the croissant up there. That's going to bother me. It's unbelievable. I'm going to get a text message like 3 in the morning and be like, dude, like, where did the croissant even come from? <laughs> Just wait till you get that like text at 4 o'clock in the morning and be like, I got it. I know who had the croissant. I figured it out. <laughs> That'll be the more fun one. I mean, do you think do you think it was like a kid? He didn't like it, so he just threw it? <laughs> I, I I don't I can't I can't figure it out I just I can't I can't find understanding as to how something like this happened. Oh. It, just, it makes no sense to well, me. I, to, but I have to know. Shout out to Jordan Glusek from Waynesburg University that sent me this story <laughs> because incredible and it's gonna it's gonna bother Josh a lot more than it should <laughs> and and I'm gonna be it really all, is. I'm gonna be all for it for these conversations when I'm working night I, shift and I get a text message, dude. I think I know what happened. <laughs> I'm ready for it. I, I, if I find more information, I'm going to bring it up in future episodes of the show. But like, we got to the bottom of the croissant mystery of how this croissant ended up in this tree in Poland. We finally figured this out. We cracked the case. I think. I think for our New Year's Eve into New Year's Day final episode of the year, we should do the best of "Is This a Thing?" and we're going to put and we're going to re we're going to go over all the ones that we loved and see if we can rehash it. And you're going to be like. Oh, the croissant story. I never did crack that code. <laughs> well, it, it, it's going to be number one. Like, I'm going to spoil that end-of-the-year episode right now. The croissant's going to be the number one is this a thing, period. <laughs> like, it's number one with a bullet. Nothing will top it. Is this, is this like, Bear Woods quality material? This is absolute Bear Woods quality. <laughs> absolute Bear Woods quality. Uh, it, it's the type of stuff that you look at and go, you know what, this is what makes shows legendary. That's what I totally believe. Well, I'm putting it in the notes right now. Is this a thing? End of the year page. Croissant in tree, number one. <laughs> Tell me, the, the croissant in the tree is the number one. I, I'm willing, and I'm, I'm not one of those people that's present at the moment. This is, oh, this is the greatest thing of all time. This is by far the greatest assistant thing of all time. Not even close. I will, I will send you the article, and you can do your investigations. <laughs> I would appreciate that. That'll be very interesting. Thank you. All right. Well, that's about as crazy as it gets to end this show. So I think the only way to end it is by putting the music bed crazy back under as I read us out here. Thanks so much for tuning in to episode 12 of the Sunday Morning Grind podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Sunday, M-O-R-N, Grind. 
at the GFIN for me, at Josh Taylor HD for him. He's a new dad. Congratulate him if you haven't already, and uh, please tune in to next week's episode. Josh, it's mock draft time next week. Yes. We're breaking yes, down we're the there. draft. <laughs> because we're yes. not we're not gonna do a show up against the draft in two weeks. We need to we need no. we need to actually watch the draft. So we're not gonna do it on we're not gonna do that. So we're gonna do mock draft next week, all thirty two teams for the first round. What do you think? I'm all for it because I'm, I'm already working on my own mock draft for the Steelers. Why? I don't know. But I have a formula as to how to put it together and how to make it make sense. So I'm looking forward to this. I think it'll be fun. Awesome. All right. We'll talk mock drafts next week. We'll talk to you then. Have a great weekend, everybody.